Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Amid sexual abuse scandals, questions of gender and femininity, debates between egalitarians and complementarians, and the disfellowshipping of SBC churches with female pastors, I'd say the topic of womanhood has taken center stage in the church as of late, and rightfully so. You know, more and more women are contributing to conversations that they were previously boxed out of, and I think in doing so are providing much needed and fresh perspective on many topics within the church. That said, the pursuit to define biblical womanhood anew and to understand God's heart for women, I think has also caused many to reconsider traditional misunderstandings or traditional understandings of masculinity. And the two are really connected. For example, as of late, you know, the more sexual misconduct is covered within the church, the more we probably need to rethink intentional and unintentional messages about masculine sexuality. So I thought, Hey, this could be fun, Jim, for me, a woman, to talk to you, a man, about masculinity and sexuality. Not obviously that I have anything to contribute to this conversation, but I'm always good for some thought-provoking questions. So I thought, you know, let's just kick this off on a personal note, because I have been curious, you know, as when you hear about, gosh, yet another sexual abuse scandal or violent expression of male leadership, you know, within the news and in the church, how does that feel for you as a man to read stuff like that? Oh, it's just, it sickens me. I'm I'm just absolutely sickened. And I say that on multiple levels, not just as a, as a man, but as a, as a, as a husband to a woman that I, I love and care for deeply as a father of daughters and, um, and who I have uh, many women in my life who I feel like are daughters and, and very fatherly protective of, and also as a grandfather of granddaughters. I mean, this runs deep to me. Everything in me wants to just protect and to advocate, to serve, to solve. Um, and I would say that um, that would run, what, strong, what runs strongest to me as a reaction is, is father. It's this idea of father, uh, not just to my daughters, but my deepest sense of pastoral leadership is that of a father. My deepest sense of church is that of family. So when there is sexual abuse or violent behavior and it's happening in the church and it's done by church leaders, by those who are called to be parents of the family, um, the deepest sense of who I am and who I'm called to be is just sickened. You just want to throw up in a corner. Um, and I think it's the biggest betrayal of of pastoral leadership. I mean, the Bible's main qualification is that a pastor serves their family well. And if they've done a good job with their family responsibilities, because the church is a family. So it, it kind of goes hand in glove. And if someone can't leave and serve and shape their own family in a loving, functional, healthy way, they can't possibly do it for a church because the church is supposed to be a family. So nowhere should a woman feel more safe more secure, more valued, more protected, more set free to be all that God made them to be than in their home. And that includes their mm. church home. 
Now, in a previous conversation, we talked about the purity culture movement of the 90s and, and just the harm that a lot of expressions of that caused to women, particularly, as, as I mentioned, some expressions of it painted guys as you know, hypersexual by nature and therefore really innocent victims of the, you know, the kind of like, yeah, w victims of women, I guess is what I would say. And this isn't just a Christian portrayal of men. I mean, we see this caricature of the hopelessly sexual man all throughout media and quite frankly, kind of all throughout history too. So I'm curious, is this ideology of male sexuality, is it based purely in just common experience or is there more to it than that? That's a great question. And I, I, I'm, I genuinely, I'm not sure I know the answer. Um, I mean, I have some thoughts. Um, I do believe that human beings are visually uh, stimulated. And conventional wisdom is that men are most visually stimulated sexually, perhaps, than women. Uh, I really don't know if that's true. Again, that's conventional wisdom and understanding. But I do know that men are at least as visually stimulated as anyone else. But having said that, Men are not the innocent victims of the supposed provocations of women. They're not, uh, period. There's no justification for, say, rape, sexual assault, um, wolf whistles, anything based on the way a woman might be dressed, or for a man to pursue and give in to lustful thoughts because he sees a woman wearing yoga pants or something. I'm not saying that women shouldn't dress modestly. They should, as should men. It's not simply a woman's thing. It's both. But that's never an excuse for any type of toxic or aggressive or abusive behavior. Um, there, and there, there, there really is a toxic, sick, distorted understanding that somehow women are responsible for a man's sexual morality, uh, that they are responsible for keeping a man's sexual drive within their proper boundary lines. And it's simply not true. I, I mean, if scripture teaches anything, it's our individual personal responsibility before God to keep our sexual drives in check. Uh, so when I hear a view of men being helpless before all things sexual, it just goes against the teaching of Scripture, which tells us very clearly, no temptation has seized you except what is common to all, and God will is faithful and provide a way out for that if you so want it. Uh, another thought on this is that it is often said that, uh, again, men are visual and physical, and women are emotional and relational. And that, that extends to sex. So you'll hear that when a woman has an affair, it's usually just, uh, I'm sorry, when a man has an affair, it's usually just lust. And when a woman has one, it's more emotional. And in a way that has been used to, and not before I even say, before we can get into whether that's true or not, it's used as a way to excuse men. Uh, the idea is that the sex didn't mean anything to them, is somehow supposed to make it easier for the woman that they have uh, betrayed and supposedly soften the sin of it. It's, it's not as bad for a man, after all, because sometimes we just can't help it. It's, and it's just not true. And you find men wanting to go easy on men this way. And it's just simply not true. First, it can be physical and emotional for a man, or just emotional, and, and, and it can be a physical for a woman as much as it is for a man, no matter how rooted. You know, I mean, you, it's just, you can't just do these nice, neat, little, tidy things. But the, problem, but the issue is there's no excuse for a man or a woman to pursue it on any grounds or to weaken the gravity of it on any grounds. It's interesting that you, you mentioned that because we, we were talking several months ago about 
perhaps the need to revisit some of the marriage books that we carry in our church's bookstore, um, just to weed out any books that perpetuated this hypersexual view of men. And, and the idea, as you mentioned, that you know women must be sexually available to their husbands or else basically the only other option is that they're going to fall victim to pornography, which women kind of have to own if they are not, you know, providing all that they need sexually for their husbands. So um, so that's one thing. But how else do you see this misunderstanding of male sexuality kind of dangerously peddled within the church? Yeah. What I see is a completely male-centric, husband-centric portrayal of sexuality and sexual relations. Um, when you go to the Bible, about matters of sexuality, which applies to both men and women, you find that it's a deeply spiritual matter. Uh, first, that sexuality is good and sexual relations within the confines of marriage are to be pursued and celebrated and it's a wonderful, glorious thing, gives God honor. Second, uh, we're told that we're not to deny our spouses sexually, except for mutually agreed upon seasons of say prayer and fasting or for something like that. Uh, and there's nothing in scripture whatsoever that points to a woman's responsibility to keep her husband sexually pure. It's not there. Uh, you mentioned pornography. Uh, the sexual life uh, of a married couple doesn't drive a man to porn. Sin does. Lust does. Choices are made by that man. Now, I will say that studies are pretty clear that once a man does go down the path of pornography, it affects his sexual relationship with his wife. It, you know, the flip side is true. Negatively, I might add. The research, I, particularly of Paul Wright at Indiana University, I found particularly of interest, has found that men who regularly view pornography uh, are more likely to engage in casual sex, have multiple partners, and to cheat on their spouse. It's also been proven that the more you view porn, the more it creates a distance between you and your spouse, both emotionally and physically. It's common for those who watch porn to find themselves unable to be sexually aroused by their actual flesh and blood partner. Research has found that it also creates unrealistic expectations. Uh, it conditions your brain uh, uh, to bond and attach to pornographic images as opposed to a real partner. It counterfeits true intimacy. Uh, the people in porn, interestingly, become a third party uh, that invades the relationship. It's like being a swinger or having an open marriage. It's bringing them into the bedroom, which is why when one spouse finds out that the other is using porn, like a woman finds out her husband is using porn, feel like a form of being unfaithful to them. And it should, because it is. Uh, now, to be fair, this isn't just a man's issue. Uh, the percentage of women consuming porn is on the rise. Uh, I remember reading a study that before COVID, uh, at the end of 2019, uh, one of the most heavily used porn sites reported that at least three out of every 10 consumers was a woman. And other studies have found that more than a third of all women are watching porn every week. Uh, but back to your question, a toxic view of male sexuality is being disseminated throughout the church in, in so many ways. Uh, there's a video of a pastor. I don't, I don't know if you saw it uh, speaking in a church that went viral several months ago. He was castigating women in the church who had, in his words, let themselves go. And he was just shaming them and how they had let down their husbands and they were responsible for their husband's wandering eyes. They were responsible for their husband's lust and and they needed to take care, better care of themselves. And it was just it was just insane. And and I you couldn't help but smile that he himself was anything but in shape. I mean, he was a, he was a very overweight man. And and uh, so the double standard was was acute. 
And the message to women about sexuality was clear. You exist for men. But sexuality, I would say, is just one component of this conversation. And I'd like to shift now to other deeply held understandings of masculinity that have proved to be toxic, again, in some of their expressions. And I'm thinking, for example, of the Christian man as the authoritarian leader of the household. And really, I mean, some, for some, even the authority over all women, even those who are not their wives. Now, you've talked before about the idea of submission, specifically as it relates to a woman's experience, but can you talk now about kind of the toxic side to the male leadership part of that equation? Yeah, and, and to do that, let's ground ourselves in what the Bible says about authority and submission. Let me just kind of get that as our framework, as our touchstone, specifically within a marriage. The, the, the classic text is Ephesians 5, and which opens by saying, which interestingly opens by saying, submit to one another. That's the opening line, mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. Um, that's the, And that's the key to the entire passage. That's the hermeneutical key to the entire passage. Uh, but yes, I mean, it goes on to say, wives, submit to your husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. But it also then says, and husband, love your wife, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what does the word submit mean? The word literally means to yield. So to submit to someone means to voluntarily yield to them, to willingly defer to another person. Not because they're better or because they're faster or because they're stronger or because they're smarter. It just means you're choosing to put them ahead of yourself, to be selfless in your relationship, to willingly give of yourself to them. And it's not just women who are called to this. Uh, the entire passage in Ephesians, as I said, begins with submit to one another, yield to one another, defer to one another. So women are not being singled out with this whole idea of submission at all within the context of marriage. Both the husband and the wife are to submit to each other as they both submit to Christ as the ultimate authority. Wives are to honor their husbands, but husbands are to be uh, submissively devoted to their wives. And here the, vi the Bible is very clear about the nature of that devotion. Uh, husbands are to love their wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. And how did Christ love the church? How did he give himself up for her? Well, he died on the cross. That's the call of a husband, to submit himself, to die to himself for the well-being of his wife. That's what justifies her honoring him. Uh, so in a, in a Christ-centered marriage, you have two people with Christ in their hearts, submitting and yielding themselves to Jesus on a daily basis, and then yielding to Jesus results in them turning around and yielding to their spouse. Uh, yielding in honor, yielding in sacrifice, yielding in selflessness. You know, there's an, old, there's an old joke that says, when you get married, the two become one, and then you spend the rest of your lives fighting over which one. Uh, the Bible asks you to fight over not who will not be the one. You know, to, to Don't make it about either of you. Um, instead, it's a man thinking about what's best for her sacrifice and dying to himself for her. And for a woman, is trying to honor him as you would honor Christ. Uh, so what does that kind of selfless, submissive love to each other look like? Well, what are its dynamics? Let me give you a, a simple example that um, you may have heard me share before, actually, Alexis, when I've talked about um, marriage and things. But um, it formed me at an early age when I was in college and, uh, and I was a very new Christian. I was meeting weekly with a man who was on staff at the campus ministry that had reached me for Christ. Uh, he would just, we would have coffee together in the student union. We had a set time we would meet every week and talk about faith and books we were reading and such. Uh, he was mentoring me and God knows I needed it. 
And, uh, but he wasn't just mentoring me in my faith, even though he didn't know it, he was also showing me what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be a, a husband. Cause I remember like one day when we were together, he said that he was going to have to leave early, cut our time short, uh, cause he needed to get home before his wife got home. And I asked him why, and he said, well, I, I need to clean the bathtub for her. Uh, he said, she hates to clean the bathtub, just despises it. And today she mentioned that she was, she was going to be when she got to work. He said, so I want to get home early and do it for her. And I'll never forget that. Uh, the small, seemingly insignificant thing he said he was going to do. But all these years later, I've never forgotten that wonderful, beautiful picture of simple, selfless, submitted love. Um, now compare that to a view of marriage that is male-centric, rooted in authority alone. And an idea of authority that is almost um, as crude as a type of slavery or indentured servant, uh, a mindless obedience, uh, a sense of autocratic dictatorial control. You know, I say jump, you have to say how high. Uh, to make authority the basis of marriage relationship. And uh, that just, just if, if, if you do that, if you make authority the basis of a marriage relationship, it just does violence to the biblical vision of mutual submission and love. And, and it leads to such distortion. I recently read of a prominent Christian pastor who not only felt that a woman should not serve as a pastor um, because of their understanding of what submission meant, not even under the leadership of a male senior pastor, uh, but that a woman should not serve in any role of authority over a man in any sector of culture or society, not as a police officer, not as a supervisor at work, not in government office, not in any way. They, they should not have any place in society that wielded any type of authority. Um, you just don't find that in the scriptures. You're, you're, you're just making that up. Um, and it's simply a sexist, misogynistic view of the world. Um, we did a podcast um, on the toxic side of homeschooling. We did a podcast as well on the Duggars special on Shiny, Shiny Happy People, that docuseries. We can link to all of that in the show notes. There was just such a sense of patriarchy that it didn't matter who the man was. If you were a woman and a man was in the room, he had authority over you, just, just on the basis of being a man. You had to submit, you had to do what he said. And that was the seedbed of everything from emotional to physical to sexual abuse. Uh, and the women felt that they had no choice but to submit to it. After all, they were a woman, he was a man. And again, as, as we've talked about in, in, in other episodes in relation to other subjects, what you have here is a distortion of something good. And this is what's maddening to me about so many things. It's like something good, noble, true, right, virtuous, biblical is taken to an extreme, distorted in such terribly ugly, satanic, demonic ways. And then it just kind of is like a, an appendix bursting and it poisons that entire idea for anybody. So now it's not just toxic authority that's bad. It's authority that's bad. Well, no, authority is not bad. Authority is established by God and authority is a good thing and we're all to properly submit to it. There is authority in the home. There is supposed to be parental authority. There is the authority of the church and the authority of government and the authority of scripture and supremely over all the authority of God. It's distortions of authority that are toxic. Um, and so, hmm. yeah. Okay, well, I hope you can check with me because I feel like I'm bouncing all over the place. But I was thinking about another podcast that we did about gender. And again, we can link that in the show notes too, because we, in that podcast, we talked about stereotypes, gender stereotypes. 
And so it made me wonder, you know, what are some other gender stereotypes about masculinity that you think have impacted the Christian man's understanding of how he might define a godly man? Like what you were saying about your your mentor in college and you're like, he taught me how to, you know, what a godly man and husband looks like by way of this example of him cleaning his the bathtub for his wife. Like that is not a stereotypical explanation of what a godly man is. So how do you feel like gender stereotypes have fed into that for you? Well, quick recap of, of, of what, uh, from that discussion of what we mean by gender roles and responsibilities that I think might be helpful. Gender roles describes the social and the, the, um, uh, the cultural aspects of being male or female. In other words, all things related to what we would call masculinity and femininity. Um, this is largely built around stereotypes. For example, in the West, masculinity is associated with playing sports and being physically aggressive and not crying or being tender and excelling in fields related to STEM, you know, science, technology, uh, engineering, and math. Masculine boys, it is often thought, prefer blue over pink and jeans over dresses and rough and tumble play uh, rather than sitting in a circle talking with friends. And feminine women, it is often thought, are more nurturing and compassionate and agreeable and less physically aggressive than men. Women who fit this stereotype prefer pink over blue, um, talking instead of sports and working at jobs that involve people rather than blueprints. Again, this is what is meant by gender roles. And these are generally understood to exist as a result of a combination of nature and nurture, biology and culture and so forth. Well, um, uh, what are some gender stereotypes about masculinity? Uh, that have affected Christian men as to what it means to be a godly man. Well, let's begin with the three ways that men are supposed to act. Because uh, we don't want to emasculate men. We don't want to, you know, I mean, there's there are there's male and female, different sexes, and God designed it to be that way. Um, I don't think these are stereotypes, what I'm going to say. I think they're biblical mandates that it should, should affect men as to what it means to be a godly man. Uh, the three things that a man is meant to flesh out in his relationship with his wife in his home, not everything about what it means to be a godly man, but three things specifically in relation to being a husband to a wife. Uh, all three, again, are rooted in Ephesians 5. Uh, they are to provide, they are to protect, and they are to cherish. Uh, first, being a man uh, means being a provider uh, for his wife, for his family. As Ephesians tells us, just like we feed our own bodies, we are to provide for or feed our wife and our children. Now, I know that there are stay-at-home dads and there are plenty of women who are the main breadwinners. That's not what we're talking about. That's not the point. The point is that whether it's staying at home to watch the kids or working outside of the home, as a man, you're doing what is most needed. You're, you're, you've been charged with the responsibility of serving your family as a provider in whatever way is best for you to provide or needed for you to provide, and to do what it takes to ensure that those around you have the necessities of life, food, shelter, warmth, clothing. Uh, it's not that a woman can't provide as well. It's just that the man is supposed to be the one who straps on that responsibility, ensures that provision. It's the mantle of God-given responsibility that has been laid on our shoulders, which is why there's no place for a deadbeat dad or a lazy husband um, or someone who just lives off of their wife when she desperately needs him to work. Again, it's not that women, should, women shouldn't work outside of the home. That's every family's individual call. Uh, and if the best way to provide for the family is for a man to be a stay-at-home dad, well, then so be it. The point is that men are supposed to stand up and take the lead in making sure that his wife and his children are provided for in whatever way is most needed by him as a man. So that's first. 
Second, men are called to be the protectors of their wives. Um, in that same passage of Ephesians, Paul says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Jesus do? He gave up his life for the church, uh, physically died for the church. And from that, Paul adds in the same way, husbands, love your wives. Our love for our wives is just to be like the love that Christ showed and to the degree that Christ showed it, which was giving up his life, dying on a cross. Complete and total physical sacrifice for the sake of another. Complete and total physical protection in whatever way would ensure someone else's safety. This used to be a mark of our world, and it's, it's not anymore. If you insulted a woman in previous eras, uh, you could rest assured you're, you're going to have to deal with a husband. You're going to have to deal with a father. Uh, you're going to have to deal with a brother or all of the above. Uh, the men in the family would have gone to any and every length to defend the honor of that woman. Uh, that wife, that sister, that daughter was under a blanket of protection. Uh, the men in her life would not have hesitated one second to lay down their life for hers. As a Christ follower, you may turn the other cheek yourself, but you don't turn it when it comes to defending others, particularly those you have been charged to watch over. Hardwired into who God made us to be is a protector of women and children. I don't mind saying that. I, 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 I really don't. I don't think that's sexist at all. Uh, and you're welcome to push back on it if you think that I am being. It's just one of the reasons why I think, though, that God made us naturally larger, stronger, and more aggressive. Uh, not better, but obviously physically different. And the most obvious difference is in the area of size and strength. Uh, being a man means you are the one that's meant to provide security for your wife and your family, which brings us to the third challenge men have when it comes to women and children. You're to provide, you're to protect, third, you're to cherish. This saturates the man's role uh, as outlined in the Bible. I don't mean in some smarmy, cheap, superficial, hallmark family movie kind of way. I mean, you love your wife, you prize your wife, you hold her dear with all of her sins and feelings and with all of your sins and feelings. Now, what are some gender stereotypes? You know, am I getting to your question? Some gender stereotypes about masculinity that have affected Christian men as to what it means to be a godly man. Well, I, I did all that lead in because I would argue that it would fall into distortions or exaggerations of those three that I just mentioned. Instead of basic protecting, uh, there's a sense that he is to be uh, the sole leader, um, not in concert with his wife or in deference to his wife, but simply the one who just calls the shots for the family. And again, in a very patriarchal way, which means control and domination and power and authority. And let me chase something here that I, I can't leave out of this conversation. The worst distortion of, of the call to protect of all. Um, when we become violent, overbearing and abusive through our strength and power toward our wife or children. Um, we don't we stop protecting and we actually become the one who is the threat. Uh, the one who abuses our strength doesn't go toward protecting the family. It's channeled into abusing the family. And, and, and the stats on this are just so disturbing to me. Um, you know, the more than 10 million people a year are physically abused by their partner. That's 20 people a minute. It, it, and the vast majority are women who are being abused by their husband or their boyfriend. One out of every three women I remember reading, uh, one out of three of all women, all women, one out of every three have been subject to some form of physical violence by a partner in their lifetime. Uh, and there's just, tens of thousands of calls to domestic hotlines every day. Uh, so let's state what should be obvious. Violence has no place in the relationship. You talk about toxic. 
no place in a marriage. A husband may take a blow for his wife, but never is he to give a blow to his wife. And just to be fair, women should not be violent toward their husbands as well. But that's not the norm. It tends to be a guy thing, a man abusing his wife. And the same is obviously true for children. And the millions of reports of child abuse made in the United States alone every year involving millions of children. And, 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 and think about just even sexual assaults. I, I, I remember a statistic, and I don't know if we can dig it up for the show notes. We probably can. But um, more than when it comes to sexual assault, did you know that more than 90% knew their offender? When it comes to sexual assault of women, 90% knew their offender. 80% of all types of abuse done on a child is done by a parent and usually the father, the one who's supposed to be the protector. No man should do this. No man should hurt his wife. No man should hurt or abuse a child. It's the opposite of what a man should be doing, which is to protect the women and children in his life. So, um, and, and, and let me, I've got to say this because I just, uh, I, I think this is so important. Every woman needs to know that, um, uh, there is nothing you have done or ever would do or could do to justify being hurt. You did not and do not deserve it. End of story. There's nothing about being a godly woman or a Christian wife that calls you to submit to toxic masculinity in this way, to any form of abuse at the hands of your husband, uh, period. If you've got that rattling around in your head, you've been fed spiritual malpractice. Uh, silence is not spiritual. Submitting to domestic abuse is not spiritual. It is sin against you. And if you won't change and if you won't get help, if you won't go to counseling, if you won't repent and turn from this, you need to leave that marriage, leave that relationship. You need to flee. Uh, absolutely. You need to do it. Uh, get yourself and those kids out of that house. Um, once you get to a point of safe, safety, I would encourage you to do all that you can to work on that marriage from a vantage point of physical safety for you and your children. Uh, but if from that point of safety, he won't address things in a way that allow you to return, you have complete biblical grounds for divorce. And I don't hear this being talked about. You have complete biblical grounds for divorce. I'm not rooting for that. I'm not hoping for that. But I need to tell you that you're not called to a marriage where physical violence against you or your child is happening. That isn't marriage. The Bible says that one of the grounds for divorce is physical abandonment, which means obviously if your spouse leaves you or acts in a way that forces you to leave. That's still the same double-edged sword. Uh, physical abuse of one of you or your children is forcing you to separate, to physically separate. He, and that was his on him. And, uh, and for those of you who aren't married or dating someone who's violent or abusive and you're still in that relationship, everything within me, it just breaks my heart. I really do. And forgive the father in me. But I just want to go and just put my arm around those precious young women and just say, dear heart, I don't know. I'm so sad that you've had such a dysfunctional representation of what you deserve in a man that you would accept this. Um, uh, but I can just tell you that if he's doing that, he's not God's man for you. He's not. Don't spend another second with him. It's not to be tolerated. It's not normal. And, and so again, it, see how toxic all of this can be spiritualized, even from a woman's perspective on what she should be subject to in terms of toxic things like this. Uh, and so, um, so yeah. Uh, so now well, let's move on to providing another uh, stereotype. What stereotype is there in regard to providing? There is a sense that where the man feels like he has to be the main breadwinner or the sole breadwinner or that he can't celebrate a wife's success. 
Uh, and in terms of cherishing her, the third, that somehow he has to meet every emotional and relational need in her life. And, um, and, and, um, uh, and as a result, almost gives up trying to meet any, um, you know, we are to meet each other's needs. And the Bible talks about that. We're understanding care for each other. Uh, but I think that there is this, this sense where there can be a, an expectation where like from a woman that says you're, you're supposed to meet all my needs. And I, and I, and I think that that's, that's, that's simply not, that's simply not true. Um, you know, when, and what happens is you believe that your spouse can and should meet all of your needs. They obviously don't, uh, which makes you feel that you've been relationally robbed um, and that somehow you were entitled to someone who would meet all of your needs. And when they don't, you're the victim. And you've been sold a bill of goods and, uh, and ripped off. And so the solution, you start thinking about a marriage partner who will meet all of your needs. But that person doesn't exist either. Another way that this, I think this gets toxic and with this whole needs thing, and the reason I brought it up is because if, if, if we do have this sense that my spouse is to meet all my needs, then we, we have this very diminished understanding of our relational world. When women need other women friends, men need other men friends. And I'll go further because I have been a big advocate of, of men being very careful with relational boundaries, what's often called the Billy Graham rule and things of that nature. And, and, I, and I believe in common sense living that way. But I do think that there is a way um, and there needs to be mutually healthy relationships and men can have that with women and need it. Uh, as I said, men need other men in their life. Women need other women in their life. But I, and I, but I think that in a healthy relational ecosystem, women can and should have male friends. Men can have women friends. I think of women having men who are like brothers or men who are like fathers to them and men who have women who are like sisters or mothers or daughters. And I think that when it's in a healthy ecosystem, when the church is being the church and community is being community, there's a beauty to this. And Jesus certainly modeled it um, himself. And a lot of people talk about Peter, James, and John being his most intimate friends. I would argue, I think it was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Mary Magdalene as well. I mean, he had dear women friends that were obviously completely sin-free. Well, I'm glad you brought up Jesus because it feels like when we talk about biblical we finally brought up Jesus. It's interesting because that does seem to be like the train of thought. Like when we discuss biblical manhood, I mean, I think we don't talk about Jesus enough. Like, because it's not from Jesus that we walk away with a hypersexualized view of men or this hierarchical assessment of sexes. Like you just don't get that from looking at Jesus's life. So what have you found in him that has informed your understanding about biblical masculinity? Well, I just mentioned one, which was that, I mean, he had healthy relationships with men and women and um, that were free of this hypersexualized stuff. And, and, and it was, uh, it was, um, he had mothers and sisters and, you know, he, he, and it was healthy and they, they did life together and, and, and he benefited from it and they from him. And so you had that, uh, but, um, but two things come to mind, particularly, um, and if I had more time to reflect even more time, you know, really took some time. It'd be fun to reflect on a whole theology of masculinity built off of what we see from the life of Jesus. I'm not sure that there'd be enough there to, to say we have a full theology, but we certainly could have it be informed. Um, but first, it, it, it strikes me that Jesus was just secure in himself as a man. He was just secure. He didn't need to prove it uh, to himself or to other men or, or to prove it by lording it over other women. He was a man, to be sure, he was not an emasculated one, but he was secure in his masculinity. 
And I see a lot of men who are insecure in their masculinity. And as a result, they feel like they've got to be hyper-masculine or they, they can't, they can't, um, they feel like they've got to almost hide behind a veneer of masculinity to prove that of stereotypes to prove that they're a man. Um, and so there's not that security. Um, second, he treated women with absolute dignity. Uh, he honored them. He, he, he valued them. He treated them as equals. I, I mentioned that he was in a relationship with them, but I think we just need to talk about how he valued them. And uh, as a man, we, we talk a lot about toxic masculinity and to, uh, toxic patriarchy and toxic uses of authority. Uh, Jesus leveled that playing field in a very misogynistic day, in a very sexist day. Um, and again, I, I, and you've heard me talk about this, I, I, but I, I don't know that a lot of Christ followers have reflected on it thoroughly. Just think about the resurrection event. The, 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 that, that was, that's so telling. The resurrection of Jesus purposely leveled the playing field culturally in terms of sex, unleashing a revolution through the Christian movement against sexism and, its devalu- and the devaluation and subordination of women. I don't know how else you can read it. And, and here's why now. After Jesus was resurrected, the first person he talked to was a woman, Mary Magdalene. The Bible tells us that she had been um, a severely sick woman, woman possessed by up to seven demons. And while she may have been possessed, uh, that was also often a euphemism in that day for just having the most severe of illnesses. Um, when Jesus encountered her, he healed her and gave her a new beginning in life. And she was so grateful for what Jesus did that she devoted herself to his cause, to his ministry, to his mission, to him. She walked with Jesus. She talked with Jesus, became part of his inner circle, along with the disciples. In fact, she's mentioned 14 times in the Bible in various groups and settings, making her one of the most prominently featured women in the entire New Testament. Um, I've heard some people who, when they watch The Chosen, they're kind of like surprised at how prominent Mary Magdalene is. I said, well, have you not read the Gospels? She most certainly was. Um, And one of those scenes, though, was immediately after the resurrection. Um, and by the way, we can link to our podcast on the chosen. <laughs> if want to know more about how we dice that one. But um, the Bible records that the first witness to Jesus after he was raised from the dead was Mary. Um, and that was important because in ancient Near Eastern culture of that day, women had absolutely no rank in society. In fact, a woman's testimony was not even accepted in the Jewish courts. Uh, even the witness of multiple women was not accepted. Yet Jesus purposely went first to a woman and chose her to be the witness to his resurrection. That was an act meant to be purposefully uh, subversive (laughs) to turn the culture uh, on its head of that day. He radically affirmed throughout his life and ministry the full dignity of women and the vital value of their witness. And not just women, but for all people who have been marginalized or considered second class citizens. In the economy of Jesus, there is no race other than the human race, no division between rich or poor, white or black, male or female, young or old, uh, that would make uh, one group lesser than another. And so I, I love that security. I love how he valued women, and I love how he had healthy female relationships. So those are three things about masculinity, and there could be many, many more. Again, it would be fun for me to give more thought to that. Future sermon ideas with you. <laughs> well, let's bring this to a close by talking about how know, maybe just some ideas that you have for how the church might reinforce the vision of manhood that you just described and, or like, you know, what kind of, it might be appropriate to talk about what kind of obstacles do you think could get in in the way of the church doing that? Well, I feel like I've given a lot of long answers in this particular podcast. So let me purposefully make this one a short one. 
the vision for manhood is rooted in the life of Jesus. And it's spelled out in detail in passages such as Ephesians 5. Uh, protect, provide, cherish your wife. Be secure in your manhood. Value women. Uh, what would get in the way of that is a distorted view of submission and authority and the abuse of our roles as men and any teaching that would foster uh, those distortions. And so I think it's a pretty simple recipe for the church um, to follow along those guidelines. Awesome. You came through this unscathed, Jim. It wasn't as bad <laughs> as maybe you would have thought. So thank you for having this conversation. I just feel like, yeah, I hope there are a lot of listeners um, for this one. This is really helpful. And I think um, a really healthy direction for the church as well. So yeah, thanks, Jim. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you'll tune in again next week.